Hey, my name is Rachel Jackson. The reason Rooted means so much to me is because before Rooted, I had a hard time opening up to people and building relationships with them. And during Rooted, God showed me that the reason I had problems with this is because of my past and experiences that I went through. During Rooted, Rooted helped me to deal with my past and show me that I could use these past experiences and my struggles to use them towards my testimony and use them to build deeper relationships with people. Now after Rooted, I feel like I'm ready to use the different experiences that I've been through in my life to share God's compassion and love with people and to help them through whatever struggles that they're going with and just walk among them and beside them and just use my life to help them. Where before I was timid about opening up and felt shameful about things that I had been through in the past. All right. Well, any of you who know uh, Rachel know that um, not only has she been timid in the past, but the fact that she was even willing to shoot that video uh, just gives testimony to the fact that Rooted does the miraculous uh, in people's lives. Uh, we're in this uh, Rooted series, and it's really an uh, introductory series into the tool that we are going to be implementing into the life of our church starting uh, in the fall, starting in September, uh, for us as we uh, help in the spiritual development and growth in all of us. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, going all in with God and talked about the fact that we are commissioned uh, through the Great Commission to be a people who go into all the world uh, and preach the gospel and to teach people what it is to be a Christ follower. And today, we're going to take a look at what does it mean to uh, pray in a way that is bold, a bold prayer life. Um, prayer is something that uh, is really one of the most common experiences that people have on the planet. Uh, a, a Baylor University professor did a study on this, and the question that he asked people was, why do we pray? It's uh, no, uh, I think it's no question that people do pray, but why? Why do they pray? What are the experiences or the situations in which they pray? And according to the statistics that he discovered, he found that people often pray a lot in the hospital. Uh, in fact, one of the highest percentages that people pray were, he discovered, was they pray before going on a blind date, which, to be honest, I think probably is a good thing. There's a lot of prayer going on before a test. In schools, in universities, people pray in crisis, people pray as the market goes up and down. People pray in a lot of situations. Uh, and those would be uh, like a broad stroke of situational prayers. But I'm curious, what are the specifics? What are the specific kinds of prayer that people have or that people pray uh, in our culture today? What, okay, I understand the uh, kind of the circumstances of the situations, but what specifically are people praying about? And uh, we found out that uh, people uh, are praying 48% of the time about their relationships, their marriage, their kids, their neighbors. 22% is about a decision for wisdom. 
18% is about our finances. And I know some of you say, well, that's not me because that doesn't sound very spiritual. But I think we've all probably prayed that prayer before. God, I want more, right? We've, we've, God, I need your provision. God, I, I need you to provide for me. And so we pray for our finances. 7% of the time we pray for health. God, heal me, heal them, heal us, heal our land, uh, fix me. 5% of the time is safety. Pray for traveling mercies, hedge of protection, coverings, all of those things that we don't really know what we're saying, we're just praying. But most, what, what, they, have all, what they all have in common is that, that for most of these kinds of prayers, we're praying about ourselves, we're praying for ourselves. And if you look at that list and say, what do we pray? People mostly pray for themselves. And I think that's interesting because we've got a God who is in control of the universe, right? And we say, God, can I, could you just provide for me a parking spot close to the front of H-E-B? We have access to the living God, the creator of the universe, and we're saying, God, could you get me that reservation for that table of four at the restaurant that night? Or, you know, could you give me a safe trip? God, could you make sure that my face cleans up before the weekend? And we, we, say, things, we say things to our kids, and sometimes I don't even know that we even understand what we're saying. We're, we, we respond to our children. We say, did you say your your prayers before you went to bed, which is really to just imply, did you say the same thing that you said last night and the night before and the night before? Are you continuing to say those same things? And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not. The reality is, is that, that when we're talking to the God of the universe, I'm just wondering if maybe he's, he's thinking he could do more than just some of those things. Right? I don't think that when we're, we're praying these prayers that God's thinking to himself, I don't know, that seems pretty tough. Like, oh, you want the sun to rise this morning? Ah, that seems like a tough request. I don't know if I can pull that off. The point is, is that I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. The Bible affirms the fact that we get to pray about the desires of our hearts. We get to pray about all of those things that matter to us. I'm just pointing out that if all the prayers that we pray are about ourselves, if we're not careful, we will become inward focused. See, if all the prayers that we pray, if all the prayers that that we prayed last year were answered. Think about all of the things that you prayed for last year. If all of those things were, were answered, who would be the beneficiary of those prayers? Who would benefit? Who would, who would be better off in the world? We would be, right? I mean, we would be better off. At least, it, let me just say, I would be. If I were to look back at all of, all of my prayers last year and all of those prayers were answered, who would be better off? I would be better off. Maybe some, some of my family would be better off, but mostly it would be me. In some cases, if your prayers were answered, you'd be married or you would be able to go back in time and marry someone else. Your kids would be in a better school. They would have a higher GPA. You would have a better job. You would have more money. I just want us to think for a second and, and look for a second because 
This is an amazing concept because it's not who we really want to be. That, that's not the kind of people we want to be. It's not in us. It's not in our DNA to be self Well, I mean, for some, it may be in our DNA to be self-absorbed, but it's not who God's calling us to be, and therefore it's not the desires of our heart isn't to just be focused on ourselves. Jesus commissioned his followers, and he says, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to be part of what I'm doing in the world. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to rebuild and love. I'm going to restore broken lives and meet people in the most dangerous moments of their life. And he's saying to us, you get to be a part of that. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which is going to become the new norm for you. You're going to be a people of power. We're not just ordinary people. We are people who have the Holy Spirit in us. We are people of power. And he says, you're going to see God work powerfully through your life. See, the church is, is a people who are called by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the world. And in Acts, what we find is that the, the intent of the church, the beginning of the church, is that it was to become a movement that was outwardly focused. But if we get a bunch of people who are praying for themselves all of the time, then when they gather together, what's going to happen to them? They're just going to continue to pray inwardly, continue to focus on our own needs, continue to worry about ourselves And it's this gravitational pull that happens in a church as people gather together and are only focused on themselves. I grew up in the church. Uh, My dad is a pastor. I was going to say was, but I don't think you ever get to shed that title. Uh, He's retired now, but uh, my dad is a pastor. And uh, I hang around with church people a lot. It's kind of part of what I do, and I know this gravitational pull that can take place, and we have to be careful with it because I don't ever want us to be a church that gets so inward focused that we lose sight of what it is that we're supposed to be about. Uh, Last year, uh, last winter, I had, uh, not this last winter, but the winter before in 2018, I had the privilege to... Uh, go to the church that I grew up in. I was in, I, I grew up in a, a small town, Roseburg, Oregon, 20,000 people, and I think it's shrinking. I don't know if it's growing or not, but uh, I got to go to the church, and I didn't really tell anybody that I was going to be there. My dad had pastored this church for years, uh, 18 years, right? 18 years. I'm getting the nod. Yes, that's right. I have to be careful what I'm saying because they're back from their trip, and so now I have to be honest uh, about my feelings and stuff, but for 18 years, uh, they pastored this church, and, and so I grew up in it. I, all my childhood, all my teen years were in this church, and uh, for the most part, everybody knew me and knew about me. They knew all of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, there was never a huge pressure on me to be something different than uh, just any normal teenage kid, uh, even though I was the pastor's kid, and and so we got the opportunity to go back. And when my dad left the church, I think it was around 600 people or something along those lines, full of life. It was vibrant. And, and so when I, 
I went back to the church. I didn't know what I was going back to, and I, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to experience there. Uh, we didn't really make a big deal about being in town. My wife doesn't really like this town. Uh, I've always thought I could pastor in the town that my dad pastored in, and, and my wife's like, you can pastor in that town. You can just do it alone. And, <laughs> and so... We go back, and it wasn't like I was thinking that they would roll out the red carpet and wave palm branches for me or anything, but, but I did kind of expect that they would know who I was and, and you know, they would welcome me in as, as the long-lost son of the church or whatever. And, and we pull up, we pull into the parking lot, and, and the, the windows have been tinted, dark, and, and it doesn't look like anybody's home, to be honest with you. If there wasn't cars in the parking lot, there wouldn't have been any, anybody home. And so we go up to the door. We open the door ourselves. <laughs> you guys all had the door open for you today. With no hug from Barb. There was no, hey, welcome, welcome, Ryan. It's so great to have you. It was just, no, nothing. We, we were there on time. It wasn't like we were early or late because we're Christians and we were there on time, and, we, and so we go in, and, and we, we sit down in the seats, and we were there right as worship was starting, because we're Christians, and that, that was a shot at you guys, but I, I mean, not all of you, because some of you are there on time, and because you're Christians, and just kidding. So we're sitting there, they have a greeting break, and all this, and and. No one greeted us. The church had shrunk to about 100 people or so, and it became, they were going through a pastoral change, and it had just become evident that that church at that season had become inward-focused. And it had stopped realizing what the Great Commission was all about. I don't, I don't want us as a church to to fall into that trap. And the best remedy, the best antidote for, for becoming inward focus is to become a people who pray not just for ourselves, but begin to be a people who pray boldly for the things of God. What you're going to see today is you're going to see that in Acts, the church is inspired, that it's inspired to pray these big, bold prayers that I don't know that we are conditioned to in our culture. If we are witnesses to the world to carry this message, if we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, then don't we have this responsibility to be a people who pray big, bold prayers? The, the sad thing, though, is if you're like me, and I think a lot of us are this way. If we're being honest, we, we pray kind of the baby Jesus type of prayers, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. It's, I know some of you won't admit to it, but, uh, but I'm talking about the great theologian Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights who, who, who says, who prays to baby Jesus, you know, baby Jesus, give, thank you for, you know, my gold-plated underwear or whatever it is that he's praying for. And he's praying for all of these things, but it's all for, for, for them, for their family, for their circumstances. And, and if we're being honest, I think what, what happens oftentimes is we, we pray the little 
baby Jesus prayers. Give me the parking spot. The, give me the chair, you know, by the, by the window. Give me the, you know, give me the aisle seat. So let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 3 and stop talking about Ricky Bobby. Because what Luke is doing is he's telling us the story of our DNA. He's saying, here's the church. This is where the church began. And I want to give you the very first prayer that the church ever prayed. It's going to take us a little time to get there. And I want to give you the context of it first. Because the context is so powerful. The the prayer in and of itself is amazing and will probably kind of knock the wind out of us, but the context of which this prayer is prayed is even that much more amazing. And I'm going to talk really fast, faster than I normally do, and I'm going to give you the cliff notes. The very first prayer, not just any prayer, in our DNA, the context is Peter and John. All of us probably know who Peter and John are. Even These guys are the number one and number two guys, right? These are the guys who everybody's looking to to advance the gospel. And Peter and John, if you're looking at it in your Bible, in Acts chapter 3, Peter is just done giving a message. 3,000 people come to follow Jesus, and it's the first day after Peter's opening day of the church that he declares this great message. Jesus dies, he's risen from the dead, 3,000 people come to Jesus that day. And Peter and John are on their way now to the temple to pray. And what happens is they're going to the temple to pray because the temple is the epicenter of the Jewish faith at this time. We know that, that that when Jesus died on the cross, that, that the veil, Scripture tells us, was torn in two, and now we as people can come into the presence of God and no longer have to stay at a distance and be separated by the veil, that we can actually come on behalf of ourselves into the presence of God. The religious leaders don't know what to do about that, and Peter and John are Jews, and they're trying to integrate all the message of Jesus now with all of the the teachings of the Old Testament, and they're going to the temple to pray because that's what they've done their whole life. And these two guys are a big deal. Even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, uh, if you were raised Catholic, you know that Peter was the first pope. Right, that the you know these names, or they believe that he was the pope, that the first pope. That these guys are a big deal in the Christian movement, and they're walking to the temple. And as they're walking to the temple, there's a guy who's sitting there, probably laying there next to the gate, and this gate is called beautiful. And he's laying there, and this man is lame, which is a term that we don't use very often uh, anymore, this medical term that he was lame, that he was unable to walk. We don't use it. My kids use it to describe their sister at times. But, but in this case, it's, he's unable to walk. And for 30 years, this man has been unable to walk. And Peter and John look at him. And by the way, if he had been there for 30 years, if he'd been coming to this place for 30 years, begging for money just so that he could eat, there's a very good chance that Jesus walked by this man at times and never healed him. I want you to think about that for a second because I'm going to come back in a moment and and talk about that. But Peter and John come and and they don't have any money. And so they reach down and they say, look, listen, 
We don't have any money, but what we have, we'll give it to you. And in the name of Jesus, walk. And they both reach down, they pull him up to his feet, and for the first time in 30-some-odd years, this man is standing. We don't know this guy's name, but this is a big moment for him. He's healed. This this man, let's call him Jeff, because I like the name Jeff, he's screaming all of a sudden because he's healed, because he can walk. They go into the temple with this guy, and this guy's jumping around, and he's screaming in the temple because for 35 years the guy couldn't stand, and now all of a sudden he's standing. People up on the Temple Mount in, in what's called Solomon's Colonnade, they're going, isn't that Jeff? Because these people walk by him all the time. And they've seen Jeff, and they know that Jeff can't walk, and they're saying, it sounds an awful lot like Jeff. It looks a lot like Jeff. I think that's Jeff. And Jeff can walk, but he's not supposed to be walking. He hasn't been able to walk his whole life. How is it that Jeff can walk? And literally it says that all the people were astonished and they came running into that place to see that Jeff could walk. When Peter saw this, because Peter takes advantage of any time there's a crowd of people, all of these people start showing up and like any good preacher, Peter takes advantage of the fact that there's a crowd and starts preaching at them. And he says, he gives them a message. He says, look at the message he gives them. He, He says, Basically, one word. If you could sum up the whole gospel in one word, it's this. It's Jesus. He sees this crowd and he says to them, Jesus. He, he says it a little tongue-in-cheek because he says, Jesus, you know, you guys know Jesus. You know him because you killed him. People tell me all the time that sarcasm... Um, isn't very uh, Christ-like or spiritual, but I would argue that Peter, especially in these next few verses, tends to be very sarcastic. And if Peter can be sarcastic, I think, well, I'll just follow Peter's footsteps. (laughs) Peter looks at these people and he says, it was Jesus who you handed over to be killed. I don't know if you guys know this, but you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we were witnesses to this. That's the message of Christianity, that Jesus, who died, oh, and by the way, you killed him, was raised on the third day. He's the gift of life. He's the one that gives forgiveness, and he's the only hope of eternal life. It is the simple, clean message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 5,000 men come to Jesus that day, the book of Acts tells us. So you've got thousands of people. You've got 3,000 people on the first day. Now you've got 5,000, which means there's probably 10,000 men, women, and children who, who have now, after two church gatherings, are now becoming followers of Jesus. Now scene two, that was scene one. Scene two, the, the verses, if, if you're just kind of following along, you'll see it. The leaders of the temple, because they're right on the temple, they don't like this. Nobody likes to be accused of killing someone, right? And that's exactly what Peter's doing. He's saying, hey, uh, you guys killed Jesus, and they don't like it, and they're starting to get a little ticked about it. And when he says this, 
when Peter says, hey, you guys killed Jesus, it's not like he, this was a long time ago. It's not like 20 years ago in a galaxy far away. No, he's saying, he's saying, you killed Jesus right up there on that hill. You put him in that grave just a few weeks ago, not that long ago. You guys did that, but he rose again. And we are witnesses to this. And the people around them are starting to believe it, but the leaders of the temple are ticked because Peter just keeps blaming them for it. And look at what it says in chapter four, verse one. These these verses will be up on the screen for you if, if you don't have a Bible with you. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put, him, they put them in jail until the next day. Now, these are the people who killed Jesus. If you're one of these new followers of Jesus, if you're one of the 120 uh, that were followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, what do you think that the people who killed Jesus are going to do with your number one and number two guys? Right? They're gone. They're dead. We're never going to see these guys again. And it says, they seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And the question that they asked them is, by what power or what name did you do this? So in this chamber, in this court, in this in this place, you, you have these religious leaders who, by the way, killed Jesus, asking Peter and John, who gives you the right to stand up on the temple and say that we killed Jesus and that he rose from the dead. Who gives you the authority to say those things and by what right do you have to heal Jeff? Where did you get that power? And again, Peter, never missing an opportunity to preach a message and be sarcastic. He's going to go with the one thing he knows. And he says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom, by the way, you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And by this next verse, which is Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it's one of the verses that the Christians memorize through the centuries. It's one that really, really upsets the religious leaders. And it makes them mad because they hate it when they said this, because they the reason they crucified Jesus in the first place was because Jesus said that he was the one way, the one truth, and the one life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to come to the Father except through me. And they hated it. And they hated him for it. They hated that he was, he said he was the one way, the one door, the one mediator between God and man. He said, that's me. 
And to them, that's exclusive. It's narrow-minded. And it's why they killed Jesus. And Peter just reminds them of that. He says, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And this is the verse in which they hate. In verse 12, it says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they heard those words, they were upset. They could say, you, you could say your guy's a good guy. We'll say Abraham's a good guy. We'll say Moses is a good guy. But you're saying that he's the only guy. And as a point of reference, this is the first time and the only time in history that a name is given as a means of salvation. That there's no other religion in the world. There's no other faith in the world. And there's no other time in the world that anybody said the means of salvation is found in the name of Jesus. That is a powerful statement. And no matter what you have been told, it's the name of Jesus. No matter how you've been told how to live your life and you have to do this and you have to do this, it's the name of Jesus. You have to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and they hated them for it. And they go on and say, when they saw the courage, the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, that they were ordinary men. They're just like us. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. See, Jeff is standing right by him and Jeff's like, I'm standing and you know what? I'm a stander. I, didn't, I went to bed last night. I didn't, even, I didn't even lay down. I stood. Because I haven't been standing for 30 years, and now I'm standing. Second day of standing. And I think I'm going to stand my whole life because I'm tired of being down on the ground. I can actually go to work because I can stand. Jesus healed me. And they don't know what to do with it. Because they're like, we know Jeff. We've passed by Jeff a hundred times. We've given Jeff money. Because he couldn't stand, and now he's standing. They bring him back in, and the council commanded them to never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, you do you. Like, you do what you want to do, but we're going to keep declaring Jesus. And with threats, they say, you better not go out there and preach Jesus anymore, otherwise we're going to arrest you, we're going to throw you in prison, we're going to kill you. And this is the moment that the first prayer of the very first church is prayed. And let's take a look at what that prayer says. Well, before we get there for a moment, let's, let's think about what would we pray as a church in that moment? What would you pray? Peter and John are your first and second guys, right? They're, they're your leaders. They're your pastors. These are the guys that are, are, are leading the movement for your people. And they have now been threatened to be thrown into jail, to be killed if they keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. They've got all of these threats. What would we pray as a church? I'll tell you what we would pray. It was a rhetorical question. God, put 
a hedge of protection around us. Put your dome of protection, your helmet of protection, your space age force field, whatever it is, put that protection around us. Keep us safe. Keep our children safe. Keep our friends safe. You got to protect us from these evil people because they're coming after us. Keep us safe because the only thing that we really want to pray for, especially in our context and our culture in America, and don't hate me for saying this, is safety. Even though we're the safest place in the world, we pray for safety because we like safety and we like comfort. And we would pray, God, bless us and protect us. And then what we would do after we kind of prayed that is, is we would say, Peter and John, no more traveling together. We need to separate you guys. You guys are too important. Number one and two guy, we can't afford us to lose both of you at this moment. Second, what we're going to do is we're going to buy a fleet of Suburbans. We're going to make them bulletproof. You guys are going to be wearing bulletproof vests. And we're going to get a whole security detail with guns and all those things. We're not going to let you guys be taken out. We're going to fight this thing. Peter, you need to tone down the rhetoric for a little while. You need to back off on the R word, this whole resurrection thing. You need to just tone it down just a little bit. And John, you're the loving guy. You're the guy that everybody says, oh, Jesus loves you. And like, Jesus loved you the most. And so you know the message of love. So let's, let's go with that message for a little while. Let's talk about the message of love. Jesus talked about blessed are the peacemakers. And we never really understood what he said. So Peter, that's your message. We want you to talk about blessed are the peacemakers. We want it to be safe. We want it to be soft. And we want it to be secure. No more pointing out this verse 12 thing of, of Jesus being the only way and stuff. Let's just tone that down. We'll be a little bit more open-minded. And we'll pray for the hedge of protection, which I don't even know what that means. Except for I think it comes from Job, but I don't think that means what we think it means. But here's what the first prayer actually was. And there's something in us that's kind of like waiting for this, right? We kind of want to know. And it's, we want to know because I think there's something inherently in us that's like, I think there's more. I think there's more to all of this than just these, these prayers for parking spots and these prayers for ourselves. But there's something, there's something a little bit deeper than this, and there's something that's, that's going to excite our hearts and, and kind of fan that flame inside of us. That's what I want. I'd say... I want to. I want to. I want to pray this because I don't want to pray baby Jesus prayers anymore. In verse twenty-three, it says in Acts chapter four. Here's what it says: On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So it's like, hey, these people want to kill us. They're going to knock us down. These are the people who killed Jesus. Don't forget. And they're threatening us. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together and they prayed to God. And here's what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then the, there's these next verses that are just showing us and explaining to us that Jesus was going to come. He was going to die on the cross. And he wasn't going to leave us alone. He was going to give us the Holy Spirit. 
And then if you skip down to verse 27, it says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, and they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So what's the first prayer? The first prayer is, Sovereign God, we're in your hands. We always know that I think inherently we believe that we are in his hands. I'm not sure that we actually live as though we are in his hands. In this case, it felt like it was out of control. And all of a sudden, when we follow Jesus, all of a sudden what happens is is it seems like the bad guy's winning. It seems like things aren't going exactly as smoothly as we wanted them to go. And And what they're saying to us is when those moments come and it seems like the world is crashing around you, the prayer, the very first prayer and the very prayer that we should be praying today is our sovereign Lord, we are in your hands. I don't know if I can make it another day. We don't understand what's going on. We we don't understand the pain, the sadness, we know that the wind has been knocked out of us in the midst of our, of our circumstances and our situation. We were in jail last night, but now we are in your hands. We're not always safe, but we're in your hands. You're the God who controls creation. You, God, we are in your hands. We're going to believe that you're good and that you're loving and that you're sovereign and whatever is happening, we are in your hands. Everything that happens in this life isn't good, but still you are in control because we are in your hands. It's the first part of that prayer and it's an amazing, amazing prayer. It's an exciting thing. Can you pray that prayer when your life starts busting apart? It's easy for us to pray that prayer when things are going well, when things are going smoothly, but when everything around us is falling apart, we tend to pray, God, give us protection. God, do this. God, do that. And could we just simply pray, God, I'm in your hands. But if that wasn't enough, they go on and they pray, Sovereign Lord, we are in your hands. And in verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, Consider their threats. He's talking about these people who are saying they're going to they're kill us. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. If I'm these guys, I'm praying. Consider their threats. God, go ahead, pillar of fire, anytime you want, take them down. No, they say, will you enable us to speak your word with great boldness? Not just boldness, great boldness, to which we here in Stone Oak in San Antonio, Texas, we would say, I don't think boldness is your problem. Boldness is what you got, got you into this situation. You were super bold and you were in jail. You keep telling them that they killed Jesus. That's kind of bold. You're asking for bold, you're asking for great boldness, but that's that's been the problem. So let me ask us all this question. When was the last time in our life, in our prayer life, 
And we went back and connected to this, to our DNA, to the very first prayer in the very first church where we prayed, God, would you give us great boldness? You say, well, I'm praying for the salvation of, of my friends, of my family, of my coworkers. But maybe the, the question then is, but do you talk to them about it? Well, I don't really talk to them about it. I just pray for them. Are we ever going to say, God, give me the boldness. Give me the opportunity. Give me a divine moment. Give me great boldness. Now, don't misunderstand the word boldness. It doesn't say, God, give me great obnoxiousness. It doesn't say, it's, it's not great weirdness. It's not great judgmental attitude. It's not great isolation. It's, God, would you give me great boldness? And boldness is courage. It's the courage to forgive people when they've wronged you. When they've hurt you and not take vengeance. Boldness is willing to go out and serve the marginalized and those who have been forgotten. Boldness is being generous in spirit. Boldness is the courage to step out and stand in the gap for people. It's not always loud and obnoxious. It's courage. God, give me the courage to step in and be the witness to act in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, give me great Boldness. There's our prayer. That's who we were intended to be. And if that wasn't enough, they keep going on. Look at what they go on and say in verse 30. It says, God, would you stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus? They said, God, would you stretch out your hands? Would you heal, perform miracles, signs, and wonders? So we'll just ask the same question. How many of us prayed that this last week? God, give me great boldness. And God, would you heal and do signs and wonders? And, and could you just do the miraculous in this week? Uh, most of us, if you're like me, no. I didn't pray that this last week. If that disappoints you as your pastor, I apologize, but, but I didn't pray for it. Some of you are thinking, I'm not really a signs and wonders kind of person. I'm not, not that healing kind of person. My Jesus is calm. My Jesus fits in the medicine cabinet. I'm not sure I'm even comfortable with the whole miraculous signs thing. But let me ask you a question. Do we as a church think that God can do all of what he wants to do in this city, in the people who are far from God, the people that he loves so much. Do we believe that he can do in them what he wants to do, what he's done in us without miraculous signs and wonders, without experiencing the power of God in their life in some way, and somehow, we're going to have to answer that question because at the core of our DNA, the way in which we as Christ followers are to live our life, the very first Christians, these believers, the first church did not believe that people would just turn to Jesus with a message. They believed that God would have to show up in a supernatural way, that he would have to do miracles like he did with Jeff. There would be signs and wonders and it would be right in front of them. 
this guy who Jesus walked by many, many times. He never healed him. But I have to imagine in my head, and I, this is me speaking, this is not gospel, but this is me speaking. I have to imagine that he smiled every time he saw him. Seems a little cruel because it's like, you know, I don't know how much longer he had to wait, but, you know, a few years, whatever. See, he knew his story. He knew the testimony that Jeff's healing was going to have and that 5,000 people were going to come in to become followers of Jesus Christ. That children and women and men would come to Jesus because they had seen the miraculous hand of God do something that's absolutely unexplainable any other way except for the fact that it could only be God that healed Jeff. See, oftentimes what we do is, as a church, we, will, we, will, we want the miraculous. We want to see healing. We want to see miracles. But, but if you're like me, we can become even selfish with that. We want to see miracles here in the church. We want to see healing here in the church. And my question is, is our, who is the miraculous for? Is it for us or is it for them? Is it, it, because we get it. If you're a Christ follower already, you get it. If you're still doubting, then the miracle's for you. If you're still questioning whether or not God's real, if you're questioning whether or not he loves and cares about you, then maybe that miracle is for you. Maybe that healing is for you. But whatever the case if we call ourselves Christ followers, if we are believers, then the miraculous and the signs and the wonders, they're not so that we can stand around and feel good about ourselves. It's so that people who are far from God, who God so desperately loves, who will never come into a relationship with him except when God does extraordinary th things through unextraordinary people. They weren't saying, God, heal us, rescue us, save us. They're saying, God, stretch out your mighty hand so that people will know you. I want great boldness in my life. I, I want when, when I know that somebody's in the hospital, a friend's in the hospital who is far from God, I want to be able to go to the hospital and ask them if I can pray for them. And that God would heal them in such a miraculous way, not for my benefit, but that they would experience the love of God, that they would know maybe for the first time that there is a God who loves and cares about them. But to be honest, we can't even go there. Because if you're like me, you think, well, what if I go and what if I pray and God doesn't do it? Right? We've all had that thought. We were almost hesitant to pray for healing in people because we're like, if he doesn't show up, it's going to just be worse. I got news for you. God did not appoint us to be his excusers. He, he doesn't need us to make excuses for him. He doesn't need us to, uh, to be a people who protects him. The reality is, is oftentimes our view of God is probably too small because we don't think he wants to do the thing that we want him to do. But what if we were to go bold? God, I'm, I'm going in. I got my friends who are struggling in their marriage. It's busting apart. I'm going to ask them to pray over them. And you pray because they're far from God. And they're pretty sure that God doesn't love them. And you say, God, would you heal this marriage? 
Would you heal this marriage, not for my benefit, but so that they would know that there's a God in heaven who loves them, who died for them, and who wants the very best for them? Are we willing to say to our friends, I'm praying for you so that you would know that God loves you and that he died for you and he is crazy about you? He's all about you. And I want to see his power in your life. Do we think that God is going to do everything he wants to do in this city, in this community, with our friends, with our family who are far from God without miraculous signs, wonders, and healing? The answer is no. I don't. So could I just leave you with this question and we need to wrap things up. Would you partner with me? Would you consider adding to your prayers? Go ahead, pray for your safe trip. Pray for your parking spot. Pray for your lost keys. I don't care. Pray that your face will clean up by the weekend. That's great, you know. Do that. Bible affirms that God cares about what you care about. But could you pray those prayers? Could you add to that prayer? Could you add to the prayer, Sovereign God, I'm in your hands. I'm right where you want me to be. You're in control. God, would you give me great boldness and would you stretch out your hand in my life and do miraculous signs and wonders and healing so that people can see your power? Could every day as we petition and go before the Lord, could we every day begin to pray that God would give us great boldness and that we would be a people that miracles and signs and wonders and healing flow out of. In verse 31, they close, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. If we were to pray that prayer, and God were to answer that prayer, God, I'm in your hands. Give me great boldness. Stretch out your hand and do the miraculous. Who benefits from that? Not us. But those who are far from God, who he desperately loves. It benefits our world. It benefits our city. It benefits our community. And if we stay with the small prayers, we'll be better off. We'll come to church and we'll wonder why everything isn't the way that we want. And we'll become inward focused. And we'll forget that we're actually commanded and commissioned to go into this world and to be ambassadors and witnesses for God. I'm so convicted by this prayer because I, I don't pray it. And I'm convicted by the fact that, that if it was left up to me, the advancement of the gospel wouldn't even make it out of San Antonio. And if, if the people in the first church prayed the kind of prayers that I pray, we would not be sitting here today. And yet, they prayed a prayer that said, let us speak boldly, let us have great boldness, let us see signs and wonders and miracles, and let us advance the message 
of love of Jesus Christ to this world. And now we have a choice. Statistics, people say that the church is dying in America. And maybe it's dying because we're not praying the prayer, God, give me great boldness. God, will you, will you stretch out your hand and do the miraculous? God, could we be a people who advances the message of God?